my name is Alex Baropoulos. I'm professor of medicine at the Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell in New York. And I will be discussing today our good practice statements for antithrombotic therapy in the management of COVID-19. Uh, these are guidance statements from the Scientific Standardization Committee of the International Society on Thrombosis and Hemostasis. And these statements were presented at the ISTH 2022 uh, Congress. Now by introduction, our good practice statements uh, uh, is based on a body of either direct or indirect evidence or clinical experience that supports what we call net clinical benefit in enacting these statements. In other words, they're based on, uh, again, lots of clinical experience and also a body of data to suggest benefit uh, in enacting these statements. The antithrombotic therapies discussed in these good practice statements should be available in low and middle income countries. And the statements were revised based on panelist feedback and approved by all panelists. Our panelists were multidisciplinary and came from a variety of, uh, of countries. So our good practice statement panel agreed on 17 good practice statements, three in the outpatient or pre-hospital setting, 12 in the hospital setting, which included non-critical care or ward settings, as well as intensive care unit or ICU settings, and two in the immediate post-hospital discharge setting. So based on this, I will uh, like to highlight some of the key good practice statements. Firstly, let's discuss the outpatient or pre-hospital period. And here, one of the key uh, aspects of, of a statement is the use of direct oral anticoagulants or DOACs versus vitamin K antagonists or VKA such as warfarin in this period. We now can appreciate that there are many patients uh, who are COVID-19 positive and are eligible to receive certain antiviral COVID-19 medications, a good example of which is Paxlovid. Now, importantly, there's potential for important drug-drug interactions, particularly with the direct oral anticoagulants, that may increase the bioavailability of these anticoagulants, and then thus uh, potentially increase patients' risk for bleeding. So our first statement is that COVID-19 outpatients who have potentially interacting medications and are uh, on DOACs, they should be managed, i.e. have the DOACs either held or dose reduced or monitored closely using an individualized approach for at least seven days from the time of Paxlovid initiation. If patients are in a, a VKA such as warfarin, warfarin should be monitored closely. Our second statement includes the use of low molecular weight heparin versus no heparin in this outpatient or pre-hospitalization period. And since the since our discussion at the ISTH Congress, there have been now two published randomized controlled trials that show uh, no benefit of initiating low liquid heparin therapy 
for COVID-19 outpatients. As such, low molecular heparin should not be initiated in outpatients with COVID-19 to improve clinical outcomes. However, patients who are very sick and are in hospital at home programs, in other words, they're sick enough to need supplemental oxygen and they're sick enough to be immobile may be considered for primary lone liquid heparin thromboprophylaxis. And of course, the third statement concerns, concerns antiplatelets. And again, just as in the ISTH guidelines, antiplatelet therapy, including aspirin, should not be initiated in uh, outpatients with COVID-19. But of course, uh, if patients are already on antiplatelet therapy, for clear indications, uh, these therapies should be continued. Now let's go into the hospitalization period, and this is in the non-critically ill or ward settings. Now we can appreciate now that hospitalization criteria for non-critically ill patients with COVID-19 have varied across countries, health systems, and phases of the pandemic. But in general terms, those patients hospitalized for COVID-19 and don't require mechanical ventilation or organ support other than low flow supplemental oxygen should be considered non-critically ill. So the first uh, practice statement in this population concerns patient selection for therapeutic dose heparin, especially lone liquid heparin as thromboprophylaxis. And this is a very important, a good practice statement. We now know that there are a number of randomized controlled trials that showed benefit of the use of therapeutic dose low liquid heparin versus standard or low prophylactic doses of heparin in hospitalized ward uh, COVID-19 patients. But there were definite selection criteria in these trials. All the trials selected patients at low bleeding risk with some of the key exclusionary criteria consisting of uh, the use of dual antiplatelet therapy, bleeding within the past month before admission, active cancer, especially gastrointestinal or intracranial cancer, um, bronchiectasis or pulmonary cavitation, hepatic dysfunction with elevated baseline INR levels, creatinine clearance less than 15 milliliters a minute, or platelet count less than 25,000. So the other thing that we can appreciate is that selection criteria for these randomized trials included patients who had elevated D-dimers or increased oxygen requirements not requiring mechanical ventilation. As such, moderately ill patients hospitalized for COVID-19 in non-critical care settings as described who were, number one, who are at low bleeding risk as I just described, and have elevated D-dimer levels greater or equal to two times the upper limit of local laboratory normal or require supplemental oxygen or have reduced oxygen saturation less than or equal to 93% on room air. These are the patients who would be ideal candidates for therapeutic dose low liquid heparin for thromboprophylaxis. Now let's look at the second uh, statement in this and this is the uh, pregnant patient. This is a very important uh, patient profile. And for moderately ill pregnant patients, the use of empiric therapeutic dose thromboprophylaxis, preferably with low liquid heparin, should be considered on an individualized basis. 
um, very similar to those of the non-pregnant population. But all antepartum pregnant patients hospitalized for COVID-19 should at least receive standard dose heparin thromprophylaxis, again, preferably with low liquid heparin. The other statement concerns the pediatric population. And now we have the results of an open-label multicenter phase two trial uh, in children under the uh, age of 18 years. This is the COVAC-TP trial that showed the use of twice daily anexaparin as thromboprophylaxis at a dose of 0.5 milligrams per kilogram was safe in achieving target anti-10A levels without observed clinically relevant bleeding or serious adverse events. So importantly, twice daily weight-based lone liquid heparin at half the treatment dose should be considered for primary thromboprophylaxis in children hospitalized for COVID-19. And these children um, can be with or without uh, pediatric multi-inflammatory syndrome. Let's look at the next statement of the hospitalization period. Uh, and this includes uh, uh, patients who have chronic kidney disease or acute kidney injury. We know that these patients are at elevated risk for adverse events, including cardiovascular complications. And again, the use of standard doses of, help, of heparin, either unfractured heparin or low molecular heparin, uh, can be used down to a creatinine clearance of 30 milliliters a minute. However, for patients who have a creatinine clearance anywhere from 15 to 29 milliliters a minute, um, one should consider a renal dose adjustment of lone liquid heparin for both uh, prophylaxis. And a good example of that is the use of an exaparin at the 30 milligram dose daily, as opposed to the 40 milligram dose daily, or treatment. And again, a good example is the use of an exaparin at half uh, the treatment dose daily, namely one milligram per kilogram every 24 hours, or 0.5 milligram per kilogram uh, twice daily. Again, the preferred parental agent for patients who have a creatinine clearance under 15 milliliters a minute should continue to be unfractionated heparin. And in general, due to the high dependence of renal clearance, fondaparinux should be avoided uh, in these populations. For renal replacement therapy, again, the use of systemic unfractured heparin to regional citrate anticoagulation can be considered to reduce the risk of, uh, uh, again, a filter site thrombosis. And if filter thrombosis does occur despite systemic use of unfractured heparin, another option is to consider an intravenous direct thrombin inhibitor, such as intravenous argatroban. Another, uh, I think, important patient population uh, that is hospitalized is the uh, obese population. And we all can appreciate that obesity is a known risk factor for thrombosis. For patients with class one obesity, i.e. their BMI is anywhere from 30 to 35, thromboprophylaxis dosing um, may follow existing guidelines. But for patients with class two or greater obesity, i.e. their BMI is 35 or greater, one should consider escalated dose heparins, either using fixed intermediate doses of low liquid heparin, a good example is the use of an exaparin 40 milligrams twice daily, or the use of a weight-based low liquid heparin regimen, such as an exaparin at a dose of 0.5 milligram per kilogram sub-Q twice daily. 
This is typically about 50% higher than corresponding doses for non-obese populations. And the treatment, of course, for VTE in the obese patient should follow the same guidance as the non-obese patient, with the only caveats that there should be no dose capping for low liquid heparin and no deviation from standard fixed doses of the DOAX. The other, I think, important uh, suggestions in terms of our statements are hospitalized patients with existing indications for antithrombotic therapy. And again, for those patients who are on uh, vitamin K antagonists such as warfarin, warfarin should be closely monitored during the hospitalization period. For patients, importantly, who are on direct oral anticoagulants, they should be switched to a parental therapeutic dose heparin in hospital, either lone liquid heparin with renal dose adjustment or dose-adjusted intravenous unfractured heparin. This is due to the potential for multiple interactions with the DOA, with either the SARS-CoV-2 virus itself or with the various antiviral or immunosuppressive therapies that are given uh, to uh, decrease uh, morbidity from uh, the virus. And also there was a suggestion of a lack of efficacy of DOAX uh, due to the lack of you know, immunomodulatory effects. Of course, patients on antiplatelet therapy should continue uh, these drugs in hospitalized settings. Now the next few patients uh, concern critically ill patients uh, and critically ill patients uh, with COVID-19 uh, have a life-threatening condition requiring either immediate organ support, such as invasive or non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, or high-flow supplemental oxygen therapy, or vasopressor or inotrope uh, support, or the use of extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. Uh, and again, importantly, this is irrespective of the patient location within a hospital. Now, our first practice statement in the critically ill population is a very, very important one, um, which refers to the use of heparin versus no heparin thromboprophylaxis in critical care settings. We know that there have been three studies that showed the use of heparin thromboprophylaxis versus no heparin, um, where a small percentage of these patients were in critical care settings, uh, showed a mortality advantage in patients who had routine low prophylactic dose heparin thromboprophylaxis. The third study showed also mortality benefit in patients with high D-dimer levels. So given these results, the use of low prophylactic dose, either lone liquid heparin or infractured heparin should be strongly, and again, I'll, I'll uh, repeat this, strongly considered um, over no heparin thromboprophylaxis in hospitalized critically ill COVID-19 patients. And this is to reduce either the risk of thrombosis or death. With respect to uh, the use of, um, uh, the, the dose of heparin when patients are transferred from the ward to critical care settings, uh, these patients should be switched from therapeutic dose heparin if there are on therapeutic dose heparin for thromboprophylaxis to prophylactic doses of heparin because of the potential for increased risk of bleeding. Uh, the other uh, statement concerns critical ill patients um, with respect to add-on antiplatelet therapy, such as aspirin. We know that at least some of the randomized controlled trials showed no benefit of the use of add-on antiplatelet therapy, but at least one trial, the REMAP-CAP trial, showed that uh, there may be a mortality benefit in, in, in select critical ill patients at low bleeding risk 
receiving gastric acid suppression. So given that, again, the use of add-on antiplatelet therapy in low bleed risk critically ill populations who are on gastric acid suppression uh, may be considered. With respect to the management of acute thrombosis in COVID-19 inpatients, these should follow the same principles as the non-COVID-19 population, namely the use of lone liquid heparin or infractionated, infractionated heparin for the acute management of thrombosis, and DOAC should be avoided because, again, of the potential for uh, drug viral and drug-drug interactions. For the management of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia with or without thrombosis in COVID-19 uh, inpatients, again, um, the treatment principles are exactly the same as non-COVID-19 populations. Initial treatment uh, should be used with a non-heparin-based parental uh, agent, such as an intravenous direct thrombin inhibitor, argatroban, using a standardized nomogram, or the pentasaccharide fondopyramax given at treatment doses. Again, much like in other cases, direct oral anticoagulants uh, to treat HIT or HITT in the initial phases should be uh, avoided. And the last two statements um, uh, concern the post-hospital discharge period, uh, which is up to about 45 days after a patient is discharged from the hospital. We now have randomized controlled trial evidence, the Michelle trial, that showed benefit uh, with the 35-day course of rivaroxaban at the 10 milligram dose uh, over uh, no uh, anticoagulation. But there were very careful patient selection criteria uh, uh, for these uh, patients that benefited from post-discharge anticoagulation. These patients um, were identified using a validated VTE risk assessment tool called the IMPROVE VTE score. And you can look this up uh, in, in various um, uh, modifications. You can look this up also uh, in the Apple Store, uh, et cetera. There are various uh, calculators that include this tool. So patients who had an improved VTE score of four or more, or patients who had an improved score of two to three with elevated D-dimers, greater than two times the upper limit of local laboratory normal, and who were at low bleeding risk, these were the ideal patient candidates that benefited from post-discharge uh, anticoagulation or thromboprophylaxis. And the last statement concerns transition from hospital-based parenteral anticoagulation uh, to the post-discharge setting. Again, patients can be safely switched from parenteral heparin, such as lone liquid heparin or unfractionated heparin, to oral anticoagulant therapy, either with warfarin or direct oral anticoagulant upon hospital discharge. And this is according to the usual local practice. So with that, I'd like to thank you for your uh, attention. Uh, and uh, uh, this concludes my discussion of our group's good practice statements.